Our Bible reading today is from John chapter 3, verses 1 to 16. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered, Are you the teachers of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So as Heert explained, we are, um, over the summer, we are looking at the lives of some of those people who encountered Jesus in the Gospels. And for some of them, they were life, most of them, they were life-changing encounters. And we're going to look at one who wasn't, which was Pilate. David Niblack is going to come and talk to us about Pilate. Uh, but today, we are starting with Nicodemus and that passage that was read to us from John chapter 3, and this incredible statement about the need to be born again by the Lord Jesus. Now, those words, born again, okay, they come with a huge amount of baggage, don't they? A whole load of cultural baggage. At least they did for me, growing up in a middle-class family in the south of England, Okay, being born again, a non-Christian family, middle class, south of England, being born again was not exactly something you aspired to. Okay, being born again, that was something Americans did. Okay, it's not something nice middle class English people did. At best, being born again was linked to Billy Graham's crusades and all of the emotionalism of that. Or, at worst, it was linked to the televangelists and their financial and sexual scandals. Okay. You never aspired to being born again where I came from. 
I was even once taken to a stage show called Born Again, which depicted Christians, born-again Christians, as rhinoceroses, dim, unable to think for themselves, and frankly, a bit morally aggressive. Okay, that is the picture I had of being born again until it happened to me. So as we look at Nicodemus, we are going to look at three things. Okay, the need, the means, and the life-changing difference of the new birth. Okay, so first point, the need. Look how, look how John describes Nicodemus, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Now, today, Pharisees, hey, they... Pharisees do not have a good name, do they? To call someone a Pharisee is pretty much to call them a religious bigot. If you're a Pharisee, you are a legalistic killjoy. But if you look at this, this that was not Nicodemus. John tells us in verse 1 that he was a ruler of the Jews. So he's a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. And yet, he comes to Jesus and calls him, verse 2, rabbi. Okay, if nothing else, that is a term of respect. And especially so because Nicodemus knew that Jesus had no formal academic training. And he would almost certainly have known, as clearly other people knew, that the legitimacy of Jesus' birth was questionable. And yet Nicodemus comes and addresses him with respect. Rabbi, he treats him as an equal. And while other Pharisees were hostile to Jesus, Nicodemus isn't, verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Okay, so while he's not saying, Jesus, I believe that you're the Messiah, he at least recognizes that Jesus is someone special, that he's a special teacher. I mean, other, other Pharisees, they are going around saying that Jesus' miracles are the works of the devil. But that's not Nicodemus, is it? Verse 2 again. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus is respectful of Jesus, but he is also not cynical. And in verse 10, Jesus calls him, Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. Okay, so just let this picture build up for you. He is a distinguished, Nicodemus is a distinguished teacher in his own right. And yet the fact that he comes to Jesus at all tells you that he knows there is stuff that Jesus can teach him. He knows there is stuff that he doesn't know. So he's teachable. He is not opinionated. And yet he was a Pharisee, which meant he believed the Bible. And he took his religion seriously. And in all likelihood, because the Pharisees did, he probably lived a highly moral life. In fact, as a member of the Sanhedrin, he is one of the 70 leading men in Israel. He is the kind of guy 
who would have made it onto the list of the 100 most influential people of the time. And Nicodemus would not have been at the bottom of that list. Okay, so put all of that together. He is deeply religious. He believes the Bible, but he's no bigot. He is well-respected, but he himself is respectful of people lower down the social ladder than him. He is learned, but he is also teachable. He is discerning, but he is no cynic. And he recognizes Jesus as a good, maybe even as a unique teacher. So Nicodemus is a good guy, isn't he? In some ways, he is like many of you. And yet, clearly, there is something else going on under the surface. Because if there wasn't, why come to Jesus at all? And for a man, so for a man who seems to have it all together, he clearly felt some kind of need for something, for something more. Okay, let's face it, he was not probably the first, certainly not the last person who has felt that. You can have everything. You can be doing incredibly well in your lives. You can be good. You can be kind. You can be respectful. You can be tolerant. And yet still know that there is something missing, something more that you need. And so he comes to Jesus, verse 2, by night. And when we meet Nicodemus again in chapter 19, John reminds us of that fact. Nicodemus, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. Okay, why point that out again? Okay, why, there's only one Nicodemus in his gospel. Okay, it's not like he's trying to stop us getting confused between two Nicodemuses or Nicodemi, whatever the plural would be. Okay, why remind us again that he came by night? Because in John's Gospel, the night is used as a picture for spiritual darkness. And so while Nicodemus physically comes at night time, for all of this man's decent humanity... For all of his learnedness, for all of his spirituality, he is still spiritually in the dark. And that is why, most likely, he comes under the cover of darkness. Verse 2. He says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. We know. So he's not alone, is he? He's not alone in seeing something special about Jesus. But among the Sanhedrin, among his peer group, among the cultural and political elite of his day, among his colleagues, that was definitely a minority position. And some of you know, it is difficult to be in a minority, isn't it? When everyone else is saying one thing or behaving in one way or saying, this is what you should believe, it can be hard to swim against the flow. And for Nicodemus to say what he says here in chapter 3 about Jesus, if he had said that in the daytime, in the Sanhedrin, that might have cost him dearly. Okay, so here is a man 
who is attracted by Jesus, but he's afraid of the implications. He's afraid of what other people might think. That's why he's coming at night. And I just want to say to you, if you're, not, if you're here and you are not yet a Christian, or even, frankly, if you are here and you are a Christian, the implications of becoming a Christian or living as a Christian or standing up as a Christian on campus or in your workplace, that might bother you. Because you might sit there and think like Nicodemus, yeah, but what might they think? Whoever they are for you. Okay, but whatever the underlying reason that Nicodemus came, it is as if Jesus sees beneath that, isn't it? And he goes for Nicodemus' real need. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In fact, verse 7, you must be born again. Now, for a Jewish teacher like Nicodemus to see and to enter the kingdom of God at the end of the ages, that was the birthright of every Jew. You just needed to be born once of the seed of Abraham. Every Jew got to see and enter the kingdom. And Nicodemus, he far outreaches even those entry requirements, doesn't he? I mean, if entry into the kingdom of God was down to an interview or a selection procedure, Nicodemus, you could put your money on it. He would get in. His credentials are impeccable. And yet here is Jesus, sat opposite him, maybe sat opposite some of you this morning, saying, No, if you are to see and enter God's kingdom, something far more radical has got to happen to you. You must be born again. You have got to become an entirely new you. Now, just think about that. If a man as good and as gracious as Nicodemus cannot get in based solely on his ethnic background or his moral goodness or his tolerance or his religious principles or his learning or his knowledge of the Bible, what hope is there for anyone? It is why in verse seven, Jesus uses the plural you, you all, all of you, All of you Pharisees, all of you Jewish people, every Israelite, every person everywhere, you must be born again. And that is no less revolutionary today than it was back then, is it? You see, one of our mottos of our culture is be yourself. You be yourself. Embrace who you are and don't let anyone guilt trip you into trying to change. It's why Elsa from Frozen, tired of trying to be someone else, sang, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Free to be what? Free to be me. But Jesus' message to Nicodemus and to you and to me is not be yourself. 
it is that you need to become a radically new you. Okay, that begs a question, doesn't it? Because if we all need this, okay, if we all need this new birth, how does it happen? Second point then, the means. Well, you know, if you're sat there thinking, okay, well, how does this happen? Encouragingly, Nicodemus doesn't get it either, does he? Verse 4, Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And on one level, he entirely misses the point, doesn't he? Now, come on, Jesus, be born again. Start off as a new baby and live life all over. That is impossible. But on another level, okay, Nicodemus is onto something, isn't he? He's got a point. How can a man be born when he is old? Okay, you're seriously saying that I have to start over? Jesus, I'm old. I'm fixed in my ways. Or this is the way I am. This is the way I am wired. E even if I wanted to change, I can't. This is, this is me. Okay, maybe you have found yourself using just that argument to yourself or to others, like you know, husband or wife or family. This is, this is the way I am. I can't change. This is the way I was born. I'm made this way. I can't change. This is the way I'm wired. Okay, look how Jesus responds. Verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, for those of you who don't know me, I used to be a, a pediatrician, a neonatologist. So I was, um, I've witnessed a, a lot of babies being born. And when a, when a mother's waters break at the point of delivery, a baby really is born through water. Okay, I have seen some babies literally come surfing out. Okay, <laughs> literally. And so born through so much water that it literally fills the obstetrician's Wellington boots at the bottom of the bed. It's one of the advantages of being the neonatologist off to the side. Okay, you're outside the flow. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Okay, Jesus is not talking about natural birth here. Being born of water and the spirit is the same as being born again. And just like a baby has no control over its physical birth, Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, this is not something that you can do. This is not something that you have control over. This is something happening to you from outside of you. You need to be born from above. You need to be born of water and the spirit. And Nicodemus replies, verse 9, how can these things be? To which Jesus responds, verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Now, have you ever been in a situation where you really should have known something, but you don't know it? Like you're in a supervision with your supervisor, or in your, you're in a meeting at work, and your boss or your supervisor asks you a question, and you really should know the answer. Okay, you should have this at your fingertips, but it rapidly becomes embarrassingly clear that you don't know. 
Have you ever experienced that? That is what Nicodemus is experiencing. Because here is Jesus, the uneducated rabbi, and he has just exposed the educated one, and not on a minor theological detail. This is not the equivalent of how many angels can you fit on a pinhead. This is on how do you enter the kingdom of God. And the fact that Jesus expects Nicodemus to know the answer means that Nicodemus must have access to the answer. It means that Nicodemus has missed something crucial. And that means it must be somewhere in the Old Testament, the very book that Nicodemus is supposed to be an expert in. Okay, well, look what God said hundreds of years before through the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36. I will sprinkle, this is God speaking, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you should be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, when your kitchen is beginning to look a bit tired, you've got two choices, haven't you? Either you could just give it a bit of a makeover, you know, change the cupboard doors, you know, paint the tiles, or you can gut the whole thing, clear everything out, and start all over again. And when it comes to your life, to our lives, we face something similar, don't we? Someone might look at their life, they know they need something more, they know, they know something needs to change, and they decide that what they need is there's a bit more spirituality in their life. Okay, maybe, maybe a, a bit of a moral makeover. Maybe add a bit of spirituality, maybe practice some mindfulness, maybe read some of those books in the airport bookshop on sort of Buddhism. Maybe be a bit less critical, maybe a bit more positive. You know, maybe have a screensaver that says something like, don't rest until you're insanely proud of yourself. <laughs> But Jesus is saying, yes, yeah, sure, but that is not enough. What you need is not a bit of reformation. You need total transformation. You need God to cleanse you from Ezekiel, cleanse you of your sins and also of your idols. Those things other than God that you look to for your security or your identity or your worth, those things that end up enslaving you. You need to be cleansed. They all need to be cleared out. And you need God to do a radical heart surgery on you. Not just unblock a few arteries. Not just change the odd leaky valve. But by his spirit to perform a heart transplant that will give you new loves and new desires. You need that power of God's kingdom that is going to come in the future. You need that to fast forward into your life now and do it in your life now and make you new. In other words, as Jesus said, you need to be born again. 
And only God can do that for you. In C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the Pevensey children are joined by their cousin, Eustace Clarence Scrub, who is perhaps the most irritating, obnoxious, and self-righteous boy imaginable. But on one island, he leaves the rest of the party and he goes off by himself. And eventually he stumbles upon a dragon's cave and surrounded by the dragon's hoard of jewels, he sort of lie, falls asleep on all of this stuff. And before he falls asleep, he begins to imagine all that he could do with all of this wealth now that it is his, like getting his own back on all the rest. And then he falls asleep, except, as Lewis says, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself. And Eustace is trapped in the body of a dragon until Aslan the lion, who is a picture of Christ, leads him to a well of water and tells him to undress. So Eustace tries. I started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place, except he discovered that however many scales he, he peeled off, he was still a dragon underneath. Then the lion said to me, you will have to let me undress you. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. He peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself. Only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, the dragon skin, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking. And there was I, as smooth and soft and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me and threw me in the water. And Eustace's life was transformed. But what did it take to happen? He couldn't do it himself. It took Aslan's radical surgery to do it. And Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, it is that radical heart surgery that you and everyone else needs. If you try and undragon yourself, you'll never go deep enough. You need God to do it for you. Okay, but how do you get it? How do you put yourself in a position where God can do it? Well, look what Jesus says, verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, if you know the story, in one of Israel's numerous rebellions in the wilderness, God sent a plague of snakes among them. And the only way that they could be saved was by looking bizarrely, at a bronze snake held on a pole above them by Moses. Why put a snake on a pole, the very thing that was killing them? 
Well, Jesus is saying, like that bronze snake, I too will be lifted up. I will become the very thing that is killing you. I will become the very thing that cuts you off from the life and the grace and the power and the goodness of God's kingdom. Because as Paul says at the cross, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. At the cross, Christ becomes our sin bearer and he endured the punishment, the wrath of God that was ours to bear. And he became accursed. So that just as the Israelites were saved by looking at the bronze serpent that was killing them, so by us looking at Christ who has become sin for us, looking at him with faith, knowing he is doing that for me, so we will be saved. Not from the poison of snakes, but from the paralyzing poison of sin. And when someone does that for the first time, it is because the future life of the kingdom through the spirit has flooded into their hearts and given them the grace to be reborn and their eyes are opened and they see and they trust Jesus. Just like these four five young people who stood up here early have done. As Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And now, life can never be the same again. As John says in verse 16, for God so loved the world, for God so loved Nicodemus, for God so loved Israel, for God so loved you, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Okay, is that just religious mumbo jumbo? I mean, is that just, you know, just nice sort of religious words for a Sunday morning? Does it really change your life? Has it got the power to do that if you're not yet a Christian? Or if you are a Christian, if you're already a Christian, does it still have power to work ongoing change in your life? Last point then, the life-changing difference. Now, of course, there's a sense, isn't there, in which Nicodemus can't be born again yet at this point because the spirit by which he needs the new birth is not yet given fully until Pentecost. Okay, but let's look at the other two occasions in John's gospel where we meet him and it becomes clear that this encounter changed him profoundly. Firstly, it gives him a new moral courage in chapter 7, John tells us how the Sanhedrin sent out guards to arrest Jesus. But they come back saying, no one ever spoke like this man Jesus. At which the Pharisees, Nicodemus' colleagues, say, have you also been deceived by him? Because none of us, because none of us have. And Nicodemus is sat there, isn't he? So what's he going to do? 
the guy who came to Jesus by night, he sat there in the room as this discussion is going, and none of us have followed this man. What's Nicodemus going to do? Does the man who came at night keep his head down, or does he speak up? John chapter 7, 50 and 51. Nicodemus said to them, Does our Lord judge a man without first giving him, him a hearing? So in a hostile environment, in the cold light of day, with the council's eyes upon him, Nicodemus stands up and he takes a stand for Jesus, but also for justice. Okay, that's not the last time we see him though, is it? We meet him again where? At the foot of the cross of all places. And Nicodemus was there watching as Christ was lifted up. And with Joseph of Arimathea, he takes Jesus' dead body and he cares for it and he anoints it and he wraps it. And with the women, he lays it in the tomb. I want you to think about that. Why do that now? The Sanhedrin, his colleagues, they've been proved right, haven't they? Jesus has died as one accursed by God. The Sanhedrin have been proved right. He has died as one crucified. The death of outcasts and slaves and criminals. Jesus has been proved to be nothing more than a defeated and shamed false teacher. And yet, at that moment, when Nicodemus has absolutely nothing to gain from siding with Jesus and absolutely everything to lose, Nicodemus openly identifies with Jesus. In all the failure and the defeat of the cross, Nicodemus says, I'm on his side. And it's at the cross that Nicodemus steps out of the darkness and into the light. I want to ask you, where does that courage come from? Where does that kind of courage from, come from? It comes from looking with faith at the Son of Man lifted up and dying for you. Because when it sinks in that Christ, the Son of God, would do that for me, that he loves me so much that he would die for me, even though I could never deserve it. It's interesting, isn't it? What other people think of you suddenly becomes much less important. And you can find the courage to stand up for what is right and true. And it undermines the indifference or the self-consciousness or the passivity that stops us publicly identifying as Christians. Okay, but as well as courage, seeing Christ die for him deeply humbled Nicodemus. Think about it. In caring for Christ's body, in cleansing it and anointing it and wrapping it, whose work is he doing? He's doing the work of a slave or of a woman. And he is one of the most respected men in Israel. And he is doing it for a mocked 
and a spat on and a scorned criminal. That doesn't just take courage, that takes deep humility. And it is that combination of courage and humility that explains why John can say what he says in his first letter about the impact that being born again can have on our lives. In 1 John 3 verse 9 he says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. I once heard a story of a teacher, an ex-army man, is a teacher, and he finds one of the boys in his class chewing chewing gum in the classroom. And the teacher goes up to him and says, no one chews gum in my class. But of course, someone was chewing gum in his class. So was a teacher wrong? Is a teacher wrong to say no one chews gum in my class? And is John wrong to say someone who has been born again doesn't keep on, keep on sinning when you know, if you've been born again, that you do carry on sinning? Is a teacher wrong? Is John wrong? And the answer is no. It just required the boy chewing gum to learn what it meant to be in that man's class. No one chews gum in this class. And when you know that you have been born again and you see Christ lifted up and dying for you, like Nicodemus, it humbles you. It humbles you enough that when you become aware of some sin in your life, you admit it, you confess it, but it also gives you courage the courage to repent and turn away from that sin. And it gives you new desires to want and to choose the right instead. So we're finished with this. If you're not yet a Christian, I want you this morning to look at Christ dying for you and allow God to make you new. But if you are already a Christian, look at Christ dying for you and live in the goodness and the power of the new birth. Let it give you the humility and the courage that you need to turn away from sin and to live for him. Let's pray together.